0: From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. Today, we're continuing our series on the career of filmmaker Witz Stillman, director of movies like Metropolitan, The Last Days of Disco, and Love and Friendship.
1: I was sort of seduced by that, thinking that actually I was close to making a movie when I was very far from it. But there's sort of authenticity issues. You know, I'm not Chinese. The film wouldn't have been in Chinese. I'm not black. It's a black Jamaican subject. One film funder... With the Jamaican Project said, what's this white New York preppy doing black church film in Jamaica? And also just generally people are more comfortable if you stick to what you've
0: already done. In today's show, we're exploring Stillman's long road to getting a fourth film off the ground after completing his acclaimed Doomed Bourgeoisie and Love trilogy. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock. For the past few weeks, we've been tracking the career of filmmaker Witt Stillman, a writer and director who entered the scene with 1990's Metropolitan. The film, which was truly independent in its financing and production, became an unlikely success, launching several careers from its cast of Unknowns and earning Stillman an Oscar nomination for its screenplay. This was a unique moment in American cinema, a time where independent became not just an economic condition, but a brand. Stillman became a symbol of authentic personal cinema with his subsequent films, Barcelona and The Last Days of Disco, each carrying a bigger budget than the last until Disco became Stillman's first financial failure. The Last Days of Disco came out in 1998 in what may also be called the last days of the intersection between studio interests and auteurs like Stillman. The auteur is a concept that has roots back to the French New Wave, where then-critics like Francois Truffaut called for a theory of cinema that valued the director as author, the singular voice guiding a film and filmography. (laughs) This became a rallying cry of rebellion against studio interference in 1970s Hollywood, and then the movement got absorbed into the studios by the 1990s where calling something indie became a badge of authenticity. This is the age of Alexander Payne's, Nicole Holoff's, Wes Anderson's, and, yes, Wit Stillman's. These were voices you could rely on to bring a consistency from project to project, turning personality into a brand not so dissimilar from franchise loyalty. Though it's not exactly the interconnected cornucopia that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Stillman built his 90s films as a trilogy of linked themes, styles, and even characters who recur as did another quintessentially 90s auteur, Kevin Smith. This job would be great if it wasn't for the customers. I, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. I can do
2: without the people in the video store.
0: Do you have that one with that guy who was in that movie that was out last year? You should hear the barrage of stupid questions I get. What do you mean there's no license? You mean I gotta drink this coffee hot? You'd feel a hell of a lot better if you just rip into the occasional customer. By logic of series that studios use in today's media landscape, these guys were ahead of the curve and planting all the right seeds for later success. So what happened that stopped the momentum Stillman had been cultivating up to this point? In a word, timing. I spoke with Frank Hoffner, who has written for the New York Times, Bright Wall, Dark Room, Vulture, among others, about the unique moment that was the 90s in American independent cinema. Do you think that he emerged at the perfect time? Like, was the 90s the only time maybe when something like Metropolitan could land, become a big success, and an Oscar nominee? Was there something unique about the 90s there?
2: That's a good question. I've been also recently delving into 90s indie film and the 90s Sundance canon, which does feel like this unique moment in American art, not unlike the 70s, but with a far different and I guess maybe much less more outwardly violent tone. I think the 90s sees the rise of some of like, I think the greatest screenwriters in American film you have like your Nicole Filotsoners coming, coming to the stage uh, as well as you know your Quentin Tarantinos and your Paul Thomas Andersons but I think there becomes this desire in film at large to, to step away maybe from like the bombastic spectacle that was defined by a lot of the 80s filmmaking, there's perhaps a weariness for it, um, and in turn a discussion of the type of culture that paid for and produced and developed those projects. I, I, I think about sort of the brief allusion to Spider Man in Last Days of Disco and whether or not writing Spider Man is, is a respectable trade. And that feels to me like this you know, response to a lot of the filmmaking that would come both before and after a film like that.
0: Witt is adamant that the only person he inspired was Noah Bombach, and everybody else was only working in the tradition of Tarantino, which I think is a little oversimplified. But what kind of influence would you yeah. say he did have or does have?
2: You know, I come I come out of Chicago, where there's this huge hub of mumblecore, but to call Stillman an early mumblecore director feels like it's disregarding so much of his desire to really embody his versions, his movie's versions of spectacle, these scenes with music or with crowds or with dancing or with costuming. Um, I think some of the biggest influences that he would have in cinema now are no doubt like Baumbach and I think, you know, Greta Gerwig. But I also think directors who really are motivated by a crisp, coherent script, I guess I think of, you know, Laureen Scafaria and Kelly Freeman Craig and, you know, a lot of these female auteurs were working from wordy texts um, and not making any attempt to simplify that text for the viewer, but instead granting them the, the gift, essentially, of letting them piece things together themselves. I think I feel a greater influence from Witt's work now that there's been some distance from it than maybe in the immediate aftermath. Yeah, it's definitely
0: interesting because I, I certainly look at his work as having you know two halves. There's the, the 90s trilogy, which has its own sort of grammar and rules. And then the struggling period where he doesn't get a lot off the ground. Then he makes damsels, an Amazon pilot, Love and Friendship. And those all have a lot of similarities with the 90s ones, but also kind of move in different directions. And it seems like he, the ones that he couldn't get off the ground um, were more genre heavy, interestingly, because a lot of the the genre works seem, Mm -hmm. you would think are the ones that would be easier to get funding for. But he had stories about, uh, you know, something with literal angels and demons, alien abductions, international spy adventures is what he's moving toward now. And I wonder if for him, the Autour label became kind of a baggage where people wanted to put him in a box that he no longer wanted to be in. And the only way to get something made now was to operate in the tradition that he started uh, as opposed to branching out.
2: Yeah, I think having a signature style can be a prison in a lot of ways. and. Initially, upon hearing that he is interested in genre, I have to admit that I even balk and I'm like, "Why? Why would he do that?" But I'm I'm guilty. I'm responsible for I think holding him to a standard and a style that he developed himself. Um, but I mean, mostly where I f- feel curious about his his later work is the ways in which I think. I mean, Love and Friendship I think is such a wonderful movie, on par with that initial. Trilogy, and it felt to me the first, and now what's become a series of imitators of this sort of modern interpretation of Regency romance. But I think Witt was always doing a kind of Regency romance just across, you know, the span of the 1980s. And the fact of the matter is that he can plug his playful point of view into anything and turn it into a whipping. thing. It doesn't have to be about young people figuring it out. Well,
0: I wonder though, do you, do you think that there, there's something that happened after that nineties where in the nineties movies that were so sort of hyper-specific uh, that someone like him could thrive in that. And then does that bubble burst in the two thousands? Do you think that's why there's maybe less of an obvious appetite for that Witt Stillman voice in today's landscape or what do you make of the fact that he's been mm. often struggling since that boom period?
2: I think there are less, there's less and less general interest in contemporary stories that are not ripped from the headlines or based on material we already know. You start to see this in the early two thousands. Um, and I, I wonder if Whit's, um penchant for the regular person becomes a thing that is just less and less transcribable for a modern audience. Um, I also think there's, you know, as conservative as Witt's work may or may not be, there is a rise of a different kind of conservative output in the early 2000s that does not really gel with the type of Reaganite Republicans he's so bemused and obsessed with in that early trilogy that I think it's almost like being lost in translation, that there's maybe not a place for him in that early 2000s ecosystem.
0: Why do you think there is less of an appetite for stories about regular people?
2: um because i think there's less of an appetite in general for sympathy for people you don't know these days um and over the past few years it it always sounds scary to be to be like society is like this i don't claim to to know every person who's ever lived but i think trying to work towards like a broader sense of interpersonal empathy even for you know people as often foul and rude and annoying as some of these stillman protagonists are it can can be a challenge can be a mental and emotional workout i think i certainly balked a little at the first stillman film i saw because i was like what what where am i supposed to connect to this what am i supposed to do with these people and how they behave and how they talk to each other. And the answer, I think, as it is in empathy, is like, you're. I'm not supposed to do anything. I'm just supposed to listen to, to what they're like and, and see what they have to say for themselves.
0: Yeah, I think about the way that uh, wealthy people are often portrayed in the culture now, which is, you know, it's easy to sort of hate watch or maybe even root for the demise or negotiate how much you want them to succeed or, or not in something like succession. Uh, the White Lotus, and I wonder if there's maybe mm-hmm. something about, in what you're talking about, this, this essential empathy is, that sort of goes away when instead the way we're presented with these types of characters who are in some ways analogous to Whit Stillman type characters, uh, but you're not supposed to find that emotional in. You're almost watching intentionally from the outside and enjoying the downfall as opposed to uh, enjoying the musings about the downfall. Because I mean, like, Metropolitan from the very beginning is all about this idea that they are downwardly mobile as opposed to upwardly mobile, but it does, it is gentle and it's not something where they, the characters are, he says other than wit, wit admits Rick von Sloniker is maybe a complete joke and there's not really a way around that, but everyone else has this oh, totally. humanity. And so, I mean, do you think something about it is just uh our propensity for enjoying rich people has almost like a, a hatred or an antipathy that is uh, more prevalent than it was in the nineties?
2: I think very possibly. I mean, some of this comes from age of just not being old enough necessarily to, to understand that kind of antipathy from the nineties. But it's what I forgot to say, Mike White, I think early Mike White films feel very witch. He's among them, um, Chuck and Buck or Buck and Chuck, which, um, is both nothing and everything like a Wit Stillman movie. But um, I think it's often easier to swallow these commentaries or these satirical interpretations of the hyper-rich or of the conservative when they are presented to us by people whose views we know are at least a little, if not distinctly opposite. And I think Stillman's you know, privacy or elusiveness around this topic certainly could make that fact harder to swallow. Um, I think about, you know, like Barcelona actually presents a real threat of violence towards one of these characters the way something like a White Lotus season would. And I think that moment or that worry for violence is is a really tricky part of that movie in a way that I respect so much because, you know, you spend a whole movie wanting to kick someone in the shins and then they actually get kicked in the shins. Like, what do, you, what am I supposed to do with that feeling? What am I supposed to do with that intellectual thought? And I, I admire the challenge that he presents in his work by keeping a little too close to these guys for comfort.
0: Stillman has described the period after the last days of disco as either an exile or, appropriately for his aversion to vulgarity, development heck. I spoke with him about the various projects he attempted to get off the ground during this period and his take on why it became such a prolonged struggle. That's after the break. Welcome back to The Entertainment. I'm Tom Noblock, and I'm talking with filmmaker Wit Stillman about the long road to his fourth movie, Damsels in Distress. Though his third film, The Last Days of Disco, was well-received and has achieved something of a classic-like status today, it was his first unprofitable project, and it threw off the momentum he'd been building since 1990's Metropolitan. And like Disco's death, the American tour was entering a new phase in the 2000s, with new challenges Stillman had to learn how to navigate. Here's what Stillman describing this period. It's interesting because when I was looking into some of the projects that you were trying to get off the ground after Disco, one of the ones that I read a lot about was this project on the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which seems like a very big pivot. What drew you to that material?
1: It was a bit of an accident. Um, a producer I was friendly with um, pitched it to John Kelly at Sony, and John Kelly said, "Well, do you have anything attached? Do you have any attachments to to this book?" You wanted, you knew John Kelly socially. Um, and um, wanted him to pay for the option on the book and said, oh, yes, I have Witt Stillman. And uh, John Kelly um, and I had some sort of relationship. Thanks, actually, to Stanley Kubrick, of all people. And um, so he said, oh, that's interesting. And so he, he turned it over to Sony Pictures Classics and... Uh, Toby called me and said oh I sorry I did something I said that you were attached to this and I said well send it to me and I love the uh, book and actually the first project I wanted to do was something related to the Cultural Revolution. Ivan and Miriam London had translated a the sort of first novel exposing what was happening in the Cultural Revolution called it's called variously Red Guard and um, Revenge of Heaven and I just thought it was a fascinating story and that was the first thing actually I wanted to do as a film before I got in the groove of um, Barcelona and Metropolitan. So it wasn't. It was a huge interest of mine. I'd written about it, and um, my father had been a Maoist in um, in Cambridge when I was at Harvard, and I felt sort of oppressed by the Maoist uh, movement in, in in the United States, and um, identified with a lot of the characters, even though, you know, thousands of miles away. So um so I was really attracted to that project and um I was able to set up both um my um that project and my Jamaican project um in in London. I didn't realize then that there was a moment when they were commissioning lots of scripts out of London. They were I think they called it over commissioning or or whatever and there's huge ratio of scripts they'd commission versus movies they'd make, and I was sort of seduced by that thinking that actually I was close to making a movie when I was very far from it. And also, I think it was the beginning of identity concerns in in the movie business. I, I didn't realize sort of what was happening, but there's sort of authenticity issues. You know, I'm not Chinese; the film wouldn't have been in Chinese. Um, I'm not black; uh, it was a black Jamaican subject. Um, so it's beginning to be resistance to uh, I think one film funder the sort of key film funding source in London with the Jamaican project said what's this white New York preppy doing black church film in Jamaica um, that kind of thing and, and I think it's gotten much more um, resistant um, since then so I was kind of totally going against the tide. Um, and also, just generally, people are more comfortable if you stick to what you've already done. So,
0: romantic comedy of some kind. Well, one, one project that I, I believe you were attached to that does seem to be kind of sort of along the lines of the energy of what you'd done in the 90s while also taking some big swings with it was the adaptation of Christopher Buckley's political satire, Little Green Men, which has kind of this Bill O'Reilly type pundit who finds himself what he thinks is abducted by aliens and it causes all kinds of inconveniences for him. And, you know, it's a fun, smart, funny book. And uh, I thought Buckley seems like a good fit for your sensibilities while also having kind of a, a different tone. He's a little more, uh, he's, he's not as gentle, I think, as your, your scripts can be. And uh, the, maybe that compassion that we talked about before is a little pushed aside in terms of the satire and his, his targets. So what, what drew you to Little Green Men?
1: Well, um, someone had proposed another one of his books to me and sent me the script. And um, Little Green Man had come out and I'd read about it. And I really thought Little Green Man was a visual subject that would be really good for a movie. It's sort of part of a movie genre, which is sci-fi, but sci-fi comedy. And so um, I was very attracted to the idea and the original premise. When I got into the book, I didn't think, I mean, uh, other people tried to adapt it unsuccessfully and I, and I thought that it really had to be changed after the premise it sort of the first third worked and it had to go off in a different direction and I think that for filmmakers there's sort of something um, really to be wary of and it's called living author living author is a problem and I feel I was sort of tricked into sending a draft of the script to someone who gave it to Chris Buckley and it wasn't sort of his story I would sort of changed it and I think that helped torpedo that project and that, that was the same story with the, um, um, the An Chi Minh I think um, I think that she, she there was a more important filmmaker she thought should have it and so I think she was active in um, in interesting you know bigger deal Hollywood people in the subject and so living author can be a real problem and Jane Austen was very nice to me Um, you know, when I changed the ending of, uh, of, and changed the title. Well, actually, Lady Susan wasn't her title. Um, so I don't think she'd have minded that, but I changed the ending of, um, of Love and Friendship and Jane Austen didn't mind at all. And I think, you know, classic long dead authors are are great to work with.
0: (laughs) Well, they fit your sensibilities too, um. Jane Austen.
1: I mean, in that case, yes. In that case, yes. Because some people say that Metropolitan was the first of the uh, Austen adaptation craze because um, there really hadn't been anything directly Austenian um, or as directly Austenian between 1990 and I think the Pride and Prejudice with Laurence Olivier and uh, Greer Garson from 1940. So that's like 50 years without jane austen adaptations so the cliche that like they're always jane austen adaptations um isn't really true i mean bbc had done some things uh, as tv series that's true but as film um and there was a uh, merchant ivory jane austen in manhattan but that really wasn't jane austen at all it was i think a manuscript or something
0: Well, as far as TV goes in general, you're kind of in this period of the revolution of TV. I think a lot of people would attribute HBO, The Sopranos, to that, which kind of leads to a blurry line between serious cinema, serious television. Um, A lot of people who maybe would have looked down on TV or felt like it was a less serious medium start to embrace it. And it sounds like, you know, maybe Homicide was not the, the perfect TV experience for you. But when you were trying to get a film off the ground, was there any attempt to pivot to trying to tell stories on TV?
1: Well, I had a good experience on uh, Homicide. I was very uh, happy with that whole experience um, as it was resolved. Um, and I would have loved to have continued directing more TV. Um, the only things I was offered were really pretty horror rated. And um, I was kind of squeamish uh, because they were sort of, you sign on to do two episodes of Sex in the City, but you can't see the scripts. And I felt Sex and the City, sort of, every other episode was really dirty. Um, so if you were going to do two, you'd probably get stuck with a really, really rancid, um, one would be really rancid. So the only ones shows I was considered for as a director were sort of HBO dirty shows. And um, I didn't feel I could do them Um sort of sight and seen and then there was a lot of time wasting of companies that were looking for ideas and you get a pilot um, script assignment I remember some writer friend coming up to me very excited bragging that they had a um, commission to write a pilot for HBO and I was looking around the cinema and I just noticed so many people had pilot commissions at hbo i said you know half the people here have a pilot script they're running for hbo and none of them are, none of them are going to be made so for instance when lena dunham was preparing girls i didn't take her talking about how she'd had to do the rehearsals and all this kind of stuff seriously because my experience with tv was it never happens um i think it was a bit the same as um the situation in london with a lot of over commissioning so sony Pictures TV made tons of money on Seinfeld. They just had tons of money to commission scripts. And it was hard for anything to happen after you'd write the pilot.
0: Did, so you didn't have any trepidation then? TV didn't seem like a medium that was less worth exploring than cinema?
1: No, I really wanted to do uh, TV because I find it really hard to come up with a world of a film story. It takes me a really long time. So I thought, well, maybe the solution to that is to have a TV show where you create the world and just keep going with it. So so I know I really wanted to do TV. There's no snobbery about it.
0: Well, you already mentioned your Jamaican project, which I unsuccessfully tried to get you to share with me out of both noble journalistic and and potentially some selfish fandom motivations. But uh, I, I've been reading a little bit about what's come out about dancing mood, and I don't know how much you want to talk about it. But one thing I did want to ask, though, was I, I gather it has something to do with Jamaica in the 60s, but then some reports make it sound like there's a potentially supernatural element involving angels or demons. Is, is that the, the direction it went? <laughs>
1: Yes, I really lost the British producers, um, when I decided to have comic Angels and Demons. Um, but my Jamaican context thought was a great idea. Uh, I think there have been a lot of really good movies made with sort of humorous angels. I think it's very cinematic and, um, I'm sort of credulous and, um, I'm doing a film about religious believers and, um. So I thought, it was, I thought it was good. And uh, I definitely would like to stick with the angels. Um, I occasionally, you know, get ideas of how to do it and whether I, I brave, you know, all the criticism of white person doing black subject. I don't think it's, I think the real issue in that kind of situation is nationality. Um, if you're from one country and you're doing a story set in another country, there are all kinds of things you have to learn and be aware of and try to compensate for. So I think it's good to have a collaborator like um, um, Billy Wilder, when he started making American projects, he was writing with, uh, I think it was Charles Brackett. And, um, and I think you have to sort of pair yourself with someone who knows the scene really well to get all the details right and the language right.
0: So did you have a co-writer on this project?
1: Well, I, I, I've t- talked to a lot of people about being sort of corrector, the great corrector or, or co-writer.
0: And co-writing seems a little bit different, right? You're somebody who uh, often has to figure it out on your own, but some people enjoy having that collaborative element. Is that something that appeals to you outside of collaborating with people like Jane Austen?
1: Well, I actually, with, um, with Metropolitan, um, I was so um, appalled at the idea of writing something alone that I actually had a friend um, from my college years he, he didn't go to college with us but he hung around a very affable guy and so we hung around the first day and I saw it was useless um, so, so I had one day with a collaborator um, uh, but I sort of that, that didn't work
0: Just I mean useless in the sense that you guys didn't find a productive rhythm or what, what was the problem?
1: I don't know we just didn't do anything particular except <laughs> talk
0: <laughs> well, so at this point, um, as, as you're uh, figuring out the next step, which sounds like it was sort of intentionally trying to do something different, move in new directions, you're flirting with uh, potentially what seems to be aliens, angels, demons. Taylor Nichols, I talked to him last week. He said you mold over a Western concept. And so it seems like yes. there's, there's a lot of genre directions that you're trying to go into that sometimes are the yes. kind that art house cinema gets squeamish about. So what was drawing you to these bigger conceits?
1: Well, I think for a lot of filmmakers, you you find something very romantic in the sort of stories you liked as a kid. And so I think the people who triumphed in that area as Steven Spielberg and, and George Lucas, I mean, they really went to town with things they loved as kids. But I think we all have those interests. And so I'm very attracted to a lot of the kinds of things I liked, you know, watching as a kid and um i had a uh, a sort of war of independence project um and that was sort of preempted by um by the um the film the patriot that came out um uh mel gibson project uh i had something on sort of a similar subject um and uh the british Um, weren't very receptive to the War of Independence subject. Um, (laughs) Although I think General Green or someone made the comment that at the end of the war, um, it was an American army made made from British soldiers and a British army made of American soldiers. So the nationality thing at the end of the war, things were pretty confused about who was fighting whom.
0: Well, and then there's kind of an interesting movement happening in the early 2000s, early 2010s, which is there was that kind of uh, Miramax-forward, auteur-centric boom that was kind of corporatized. Um, And then it starts to get merged with big IP, like Christopher Nolan doing a Batman series. And then at the other end of that spectrum – You've got this boom of really no-budget filmmakers in the mumblecore movement. So, you know, the Duplass brothers, Joe Swanberg, Lena Dunham. And so it's interesting that the the polls started to really move in those different directions as opposed to there being counter-programming to tent polls. It seems like a lot of studios were mostly just interested in the big movies. And then if you wanted to make something that wasn't one of those big movies, you had fewer and fewer resources to work with. So what, what was your relationship like with the emerging mumblecore independent movement?
1: Well, I was fascinated by it. Um, I hadn't really seen many of the films, or any of the films, maybe, but I'd reading about it and and thinking it sounds like something that was really terrific, and it really helped me out when it came to trying to salvage what was left of my career and and make a movie, because it was part of my spiel to the executives at Castle Rock, Rob Reiner and his collaborators, um, because I said at a certain point. Um, well, the way to do this is like metropolitan to go way down in budget do a really low budget film and um because they we were originally talking the same way we talked with um, little green man you you know get star casting then you go to a sales agent they do pre-sales and you get a domestic distributor and you get an equity investor and this whole complicated process which did work for the jane austen project uh, love and friendship but generally it doesn't work and i didn't want to get in that trap again so i said well i could do it like metropolitan um and now with mumblecore there's a whole group of people trained to really low budget we could have more money than they had and make something that would look good um but be an entertaining movie and um And it it really did help us. A lot of the people who worked on the film were trained in mumblecore, so they were used to doing things cheaply. And uh, Greta Gerwig, some of the casting came out of it. Greta Gerwig, of course, it sort of made her name in mumblecore and um, was game for the project.
2: Your eyes are so striking. So blue. Really? They're blue? Yes. most piercing blue. You must know that your eyes are blue.
0: No. After the break, I'm talking with author Giris Shambu about the constraints and possibilities of the auteur in today's landscape. And then we'll hear about the production of 2011's Damsels in
3: Distress. I'm not going to go around checking what color my eyes are. That's blue. That color?
2: Yes, of course.
3: And what color is that? Green. You're saying that chair's green, but Frank's eyes are blue?
2: Yes. And what color are the walls? Also green
1: things are looking up i've been looking the landscape over
3: and it's covered with four-leaf clover oh things are looking up since love looked up at me
0: welcome back to the entertainment i'm tom noblock but no
1: more will i be the mourner for i've certainly looking up since love looked up at me.
0: When we think about tours, the common connotation is a filmmaker with an authentic, personal style, an easily identifiable, relatable artist surrounded by commerce. Witt Stillman certainly fit the bill with his 90s trilogy, Metropolitan Barcelona and the Last Days of Disco, but his conception of the subsequent 12 years into the early 2000s, where he struggled to get projects off the ground, is one rooted in the constraints of the brand he'd constructed. Because he'd made three witty, funny, romantic comedies about a certain type of upper-class white American, that was what he was expected to keep making. The problem was, he didn't particularly want to. To get some more insight into this evolving cinematic landscape, I spoke with Girish Shambu, author of The New Cinephilia. When I think about Witt Stillman in particular, he's someone who you often see... Uh, He's got his fans. There are critics. Uh, like if you look on Twitter, sometimes you'll see people talk about how white his movies are. And most of the time people are talking about his 90s movies. So Metropolitan, Barcelona, and The Last Days of Disco, which are fairly autobiographical about his experience in the decades prior to making the movies. And so they're often sort of about these preppy white characters. And then he, when I talked to him, said that he hoped to push past that. He doesn't think of himself as an auteur with a style – that always has to have a similar focus or even approach to storytelling. But he struggled when he tried to get movies off the ground that had different focuses. Like, for example, ones that were in different genres or ones that uh, he had a movie that was set in Jamaica that he wanted to make with a Jamaican cast. And he's attributed to a kind of identity politics that created a roadblock, he said, where he – is, his perception was financiers did not want to give him the keys essentially to tell stories about people who looked different than him and to tell stories that were different than the ones they associated him with. And so as far as putting that in kind of a lens of your research and your writing, do you think that the identity politics of the auteur, then, can that be kind of like a trap, a sort of prison uh, of the types of stories people want from auteurs uh, as well as who can be an auteur?
3: I think with Witt Stillman's use of identity politics, which I've seen in interviews, um, like you mentioned the Jamaican film, uh, this kind of Jamaican film project set in the 1960s that he's been trying to get off the ground and uh, he's not been successful uh, in getting financing for it yet. But um, the way he uses that term, um, just just in my own view, um, I think I have a couple of issues with the way he uses that term. Uh, The first uh, has to do with the fact that You know, um, he talks about a key finance, a key financier who uh, pulled out or decided not to green light the Jamaican film project. And then um, the the reason that person gave was, well, do we do we really need a New York preppy in his in in Stillman's words, a New York preppy to make this film about Jamaica and Jamaicans? And, you know, that does sound odd. But um, if you look, if we look a little bit deeper and if we look at history, um, you know, we can see that in North America, most of the images and narratives of Jamaica and Jamaicans that we have seen on our screens, film screens, TV screens, have actually not been made by Jamaicans. They've been made by Americans. They've been made by Hollywood. They've been made by news media. And so uh, very few stories, Jamaican stories or news you know, segments have we seen actually being created by jamaicans so if a financier were to say hey i'd rather you know try to correct this imbalance by hiring a jamaican person for a change to make this film about jamaica about and jamaican jamaicans for the u.s then i can i can kind of see that point of view and so um i, I don't quite agree with uh you know with um with the point of view that says that this was unjust to Stillman in some way. It's unfortunate for Stillman, I feel for him, but I also see the the history that it's coming out of. Um, The other issue I have with the way that the the term identity politics is used has to do with, for example, the film industry. Like if we look at the last 15 years in Hollywood, um, research has shown that something like um, 5.5% of the films of the last 15 years have been made by women. So almost 95% of films have been made by men, um, which is a huge drastic imbalance. So if you look historically, um, that is also an example of identity politics at play, only the identities happen to be white and male, Um, white people and men are not above identity. They're not beyond identity. They have an identity, too. It's, you know, they're white men. And so I think identity politics is just at play everywhere. And it's unfair to simply point to women or black people or Asian people and say, oh, that's identity politics. So Stillman uses identity politics in this kind of reductive way that I actually don't agree with.
0: Well, and I I guess part of what I read into the dynamic with the Jamaican film in particular is not so much, uh, or beyond the comment about whether he has anything to add to a Jamaican subject, it's more of a a sort of like, why aren't you doing more Witt Stillman movies? Why doesn't this feel like a Witt Stillman type story too? Um, And I I think he's talked about, when I talked to him, that part of what he tried to do was branch out. And when he could find financing, it was because the movie looked like what he had made in the past, and that essentially what a Wit Stillman movie is was defined by what he made in the 90s, and it still is, and he still is struggling to sort of get out of that shadow. And I thought that was kind of interesting in terms of an identity politics of the auteur itself and how that relates to this aesthetic of kind of art house movies that he was uh, known for. And I don't know. I mean, do you think that at a certain point, if you are – an auteur if you are sort of he he was able to sort of ride that 90s wave of American auteurism and then hasn't really found a way to grow past that and maybe that's unique maybe it's not do you think that that's a, a a struggle that other filmmakers have come into where essentially the economics say you make this type of movie this is your brand stick in it or else we don't really care
3: um you're right I mean those kinds of constraints do exist um, I know you mentioned this earlier and I just, just want to address this a little bit, which is the kind of white-centric uh, movies of Whit Stillman. Um, I'm one of those critics who does not make that objection about Stillman. I'm actually a fan of Whit Stillman's movies and the fact that they're all white doesn't bother me. I- I'm a person of color, but it doesn't at all bother me that they're all white because those movies are good movies and he has interesting things to say about the culture and, and the subcultures within those films take place. And I think, you know, that those films are valuable and funny and insightful and critical. So I think they're not just celebratory of the kind of white subculture that he's talking about. They're also critical and they, they gently poke fun at it. And so I think they're very good films from that, you know, from that standpoint. And I wouldn't mind at all if he made only films about white people, because that's a subject he seems to know really well. And artists should make work about things that they know. And those are those are usually you know the best films. Uh, so um, so that's kind of how I would approach the, the white centric uh, question. Now, in terms of constraints, uh, you you are right that sometimes financiers might want you to repeat uh, what you built your kind of brand upon. Um, but even as I say that, I think of other auteurs who are highly original. But who are also very flexible. Like I think of somebody like Todd Haynes, who has made a variety of films. He's made experimental films. Uh, he made this great documentary about the Velvet Underground a couple of years ago. Uh, he's made melodramas. He's made musicals. He's made, and uh, all of these are like medium, low to medium budget movies. And so he's been able to find a steady source of sources of financing for his films. So I think sometimes. Certain artists are able to negotiate that and be creative with it better um, than other artists. And maybe Stillman has been in the, you know, uh, sometimes in the wrong place at the wrong time or not been able to connect up with the sources of financing um, that his projects require. But um, maybe that'll happen. So it's hard to say that it's because he's an auteur that he's had trouble financing the films. I think I see counterexamples of auteurs uh, who've been able to get their films financed while not working within a narrow wheelhouse. So would you say then that the the auteur as a concept
0: is flexible enough to evolve, that it doesn't have to be trapped in the Cahiers du Cinéma uh, concept of the white male auteur, and that economically it's feasible to let it
3: continue to expand and diversify? Absolutely. I think it's... um, it's, it can it can definitely expand. And in fact, we're kind of moving these days towards what I think of as a kind of post auteurism. And let me kind of explain what I mean by that. Um, you know, so far for for, for several decades now, uh, especially uh, passionate film lovers have really championed the idea of looking at movies through that through this one single lens, that of the director. Although if we think about it, there's so many other lenses through which we could appreciate movies. Um but and, and we do that only occasionally, like if we think about, like, say, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers uh, musicals of the 1930s uh, and as dance films, we don't really remember the directors of those films. Those weren't the auteurs. Astaire and Rogers were the auteurs of those films, you know, according to a lot of people who write about those movies. Um, but when I say post auteurism, what I'm talking about is uh, absolutely looking at films. Through the lens of the director, especially because women and Black people and Asian Americans and Native Americans, those figures, those people, have not had the luxury of their films being viewed through an otourist lens. You know, that's been—it's relatively recent that they've been given opportunities to make films, so they should also be able to benefit from otourism. And so that's definitely starting to happen and is happening. But I would say um, beyond that. We also need to see how the auteur, the figure of the auteur and the obsessions of the auteur, the themes of the auteur, how they interact with something larger, like the cultural context, the political context of the film, the social context of the film, the representations within the film. So I think we're seeing more and more of that, especially on social media these days when cinephiles talk on social media. They're not only looking at a film through the lens of this one individual director's obsessions. They're also talking about how the film depicts, you know, men and women and people of color, et cetera. And they're talking about the larger political context or the larger social themes in a film. And so we're pushing past O'Tourism to what I think of as a a more expansive space of post otourism while not forgetting about O'Tourism. Um, And so I think that's kind of a good place for film culture to be in.
0: Stillman would eventually get Damsels in Distress off the ground, a screwball comedy and almost musical that operates as a kind of merger between his classy, polished 90s work and lo-fi mumblecore of the 2000s and 2010s. I spoke with Stillman about the experience of finally getting behind the camera again. What about just stepping behind the camera again after so many years? Did it feel like making a second, first movie?
1: Yeah, I felt a little bullied by some of the people, um, and I had to kind of, you know, pick up my pace and, and, you know, try to make things happen the way I wanted them to happen. But sometimes sort of people sort things out themselves. So the, um, I sort of had a problem with the assistant directors, or used to, where they'd sort of fire themselves. And it was great because you're sort of with someone who's not happy, and they're sort of troublesome. And then they fire themselves and um, you get to work with someone who's really good. So a lot of these things sort out um, as you're working.
0: Well, and so as you're making this movie, it does have kind of a different tone and look from your 90s movies. In a lot of ways, it's broader, maybe a little harsher, a little more slapstick. And uh, I was thinking about when we talked about your your thoughts on Rick von Sloniker as being sort of this one-dimensional villain. uh, For Damsels, you almost – with the way that that movie is constructed (laughs) – some characters need to have a lack of depth for the comedy to land. And so, I mean, did, did this movie sort of create a new set of aesthetic rules for how you want to deal with characters because you're in this broader genre space?
1: Yeah, it was interesting that way because it's really different style. It's very stylized and um, sort of cartoonish. It's a, it's sort of Archie comics. Um and it's, it's sort of a melding of of the style of the uh, earlier movies with an Archie comics stylized uh, comedy kind of
0: thing. Well, and it's you know got elements of slapstick. I, I, there was a story that I was reading that said uh, you'd mentioned. I think maybe it was almost even a struggle to get PG thirteen on it. And I imagine that's I can imagine which subplot that might have been in relation to. But a li- little a uh, little cruder than some of the movies you made in the past. Um, was that just? Out of a love of that type of humor as well, bringing a a different sort of uh, tone to what you'd been known for up to that point? Well, the only
1: thing that was really racy had a real purpose, because I do think that there is this situation where people dating in that age, um, there's sort of a lot of things of guys trying to talk girls into doing stuff they don't want to do, and sort of pressuring them, and thinking up sort of... amazingly lame stories that they make convincing in order to do what they want to do. And so that was really, um, a very sincere, although it, it's sort of edges on vulgar comedy or more than edges and vulgar comedy, it actually had a serious purpose. Um, the whole cathar, all the cathar humor, um, and it's based on something real. I mean, something I knew, you know, a guy who talked a girl into thinking he was a cathar and all that and um so but i was really um glad we went the route we did as far as the rating because um when we were doing disco everyone was sort of saying well disco has to be you know really wild and drugs and all this kind of stuff but actually when i was in the disco period i didn't see anything uh i never saw people take drugs and didn't see anything very dirty and um but we sort of were pressured oh it has to be really out there and all that and so we had this some of this tiny r-rated stuff in it nudity um, blah 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 and um i we we're getting this r rating that i knew would be problematical um because i know parents didn't want some of their kids to go that the kids would like the movie but the parents wouldn't let them so i i wanted to fight the r rating um and unfortunately the distributor was kind of a coward and a cliche guy and he said oh i don't want to do that that's what miramax does but for us it'd be really different because miramax is always trying to push the element for something really outrageous well we're just the opposite we're just saying we're really innocent and we shouldn't be labeled this way and um I was really lucky with Sony because um, they were a studio used to working with the ratings people. They knew how to deal with them and how sensible they could be. And so we were advised by someone at, at big Sony about how to deal with the – and and we um, – I think they greatly helped uh, – not greatly, the changes are small. But we showed one version of the film at the uh, – Venice film festival and the Toronto film festival, um, in August, September of 2011, but we rushed to finish it to get into the end of the Venice festival. And the sound wasn't quite right. Um, and we didn't have our rating. And so we made small cuts, um, and we redid the sound and, and one of the songs. And I think we greatly helped the the, the movie. Um, it was a little too much uh the other way and and so i've always been sort of pro having standards in film and i like code movies from the late 30s and i, I was glad to see that the the code process could could improve a movie <laughs> what what do
0: you think it improves
1: about the movie it was a little too rancid a little squeamish the cathartic humor um uh and it's much better more obliquely so a 6 year old child could walk into damsels while it's on and there's nothing they'd notice so it's absolutely unseemly you really have to use your imagination to to know what's unseemly in the dialogue
0: well then it ends on this uh the whole movie ends in this very joyous place where it's literally a song and dance it's a musical number uh to gershwin doing things are looking up and uh, I thought that that in some way is kind of like building from how disco ends, right? Disco ends with the, the people dancing in the subway. This time you literally have everybody burst into song. So what what is it that appeals to you about endings like that?
1: Well, I felt sort of with disco that we were leaving at the, at the end credits, we were leaving the um, the world of reality into a fantasy. And they were sort of continuing the fantasy throughout Damsels. It wasn't very courageous. um, in Last Days of Disco because we don't really break reality until the first letters of the credits are coming up. Um, And I think we're more courageous about breaking with reality in, um, in damsels. And I sort of saw the film um, as to include all the antidepressants that are non-medication, all the non-medication antidepressants possible um, in the movie and I think the ending is supposed to be an antidepressant I love the song things are looking up um, I think for people who've been discouraged it's it's a lovely song and um, there's just a lot of things in the story the, you know the suicide prevention center um, and all the different things you can do to try to uh, buck up your mood without taking actual medicine Do
2: you know what's the major problem in contemporary social life? What? the tendency, very widespread, to always seek someone cooler than yourself. It's always a stretch, often a big stretch. Why not
1: find someone who's frankly inferior?
3: Someone like Frank. Yes, it's more rewarding and in fact, quite reassuring. You mean someone you can really help, not just thinking
2: of yourself. Yes, that's it, precisely, but without the pretty good implications. Our aspirations are pretty basic. Take a guy who hasn't realized his full potential or doesn't even have much, and then help them realize it or find
0: more. Next week, we'll explore Stillman's Amazon pilot, The Cosmopolitans, and his seemingly inevitable Jane Austen adaptation, Love and Friendship. The Entertainment is a production of KIOS 915 FM, Omaha Public Radio. It is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Today's show featured music and clips from The Last Days of Disco, Dandles in Distress, and Metropolitan. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Nobloff.